You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Cole, myself, and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today we have a, another great one, actually finally going to do another joints talk. It's been a while since we had a joints episode, so I'm looking forward to it. And we have Dr. Antonia Chen to come and speak with us a little bit about total knee um, arthroplasty extensor reconstruction or extensor mechanism reconstruction. And a little bit more about Dr. Chen. She did her med school at Rutgers up in up in the North Coast, uh, did her residency at the University of Pittsburgh, which we were just talking a little bit about um, off air. And uh, she did her fellowship at the Rothman Institute in Total Joint Orthoplasty. So Dr. Chen, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Thank you for coming on and being a guest. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I think this will be a, a good episode. This is a um, a topic that I definitely see questions asked about, but you also see it in real life too. So I am um, super interested to talk more about total knees and extensor mechanisms and um, and dive a little bit deeper into it. Sounds good. It's a fun and terrible era to be in. So let me tell you, there's goods and bad sides to it. There's definitely <laughs> questions, but you never want to get these in real life. But when you do, you want to know what to do with them. Yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of the goal of the episode. And first off, what we kind of like to start to do is just ask a couple of questions, get to know you, and then we kind of transition into the topic. So first question that I have for you is if you could kind of go back and look and, and give yourself some advice from uh, when you first started residency, is there any advice that you would give yourself now having gone through everything and being an attending, doing all this research and, you know, making a name for yourself? Is there any advice that you would give yourself as a, as a resident or I guess any just general advice? General advice I would say is keep your mind open. You may not believe me when I say this, but I actually wasn't really interested in research when I started residency. I did research as a medical student because we had to, that was part of a way of getting into orthopedics. So I think I had one paper when I applied for residency. Now, if you have one paper, you're done, right? You can't even apply. So it's crazy how things have changed. And it just became something that I got interested in when I was a first year resident as an intern, there was a research meeting. I decided to do some research. So keep an open mind. You know, I really flirted with the idea of going to spine, didn't end up going to spine, did joints because I actually like good patient outcomes. That said, keep your mind <laughs> open and enjoy different things. So for all you spine listeners out there, I apologize in advance. The surgeries are awesome, <laughs> but man, those clinics are hard. Yeah, it can, it can, it can be uh, rough in some of those spine clinics. Um, Okay, a second second question we have for you is, uh, do you have any books that you have gifted to others uh, frequently? It can be books on anything, doesn't necessarily have to be about orthopedics, if it is cool, but do you have any books in general that you gift to others? That's an interesting question. I've actually never been asked that before. Um, I think something that I um, that's really important to me, but that's totally outside of orthopedics is uh, my faith. And so the case for Christ is a book um, okay. I've gifted to others. So something very different from orthopedics. Awesome. Good. That's a, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a good one. You know, we always love to hear people's, you know, interest in thoughts outside of orthopedics because we do have lives outside of orthopedics. You do? And 
that <laughs> and that is a perfect transition into the third question is do you have any activities or things that you enjoy doing outside of the field of orthopedic surgery i do um i like to ride my road bike and i also like to peloton and i like to play with my little yorkie lily that is awesome. After you said road bike, I was just about to follow up with the Peloton question, but you already <laughs> addressed it. So I'm glad you have joined the Peloton crew. I have not joined it yet, but one of these days I will, but I hear so many great things about it. And um, only a matter of time. Yeah, I, I know. So, they're a little expensive. One of these days I may, um, I I may get admit, one. It was a good attending gift to myself when I had it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Dr. Chen, let us transition a little to our talk of the day. Um, and what I think would be good is to kind of cover a couple different ways of how, you know, we're, we're talking about extensive mechanism failure. And we can, what we can do is talk about a couple different ways of how the, or where that failure can occur. And then we can transition into extensor mechanism reconstruction. Um, so say, for example, Dr. Chen, you have a 75 year old uh, male who came to your office. Uh, he had a, he had his total joint replacement done at an outside facility somewhere many years ago, does not remember where. And he actually went to the ED a couple of days ago after falling directly onto his knee. They diagnosed him with a patella fracture. They did not call you at the time. And he showed up in your clinic. And so kind of from there, um, if we could just can you kind of kind of just go over kind of what you know the, these extensive mechanism failures are how often you see them and 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 what are some of the first things that come to your mind when you when you hear this story in clinic it's always interesting actually so you know one of the things you're highlighting here is the fact that it is very rare and i will tell you one of the interesting things being in practice is that i don't always see them so if someone comes in with a fracture patella fracture they end up with a traumatologist normally so while they may have a joint in there, they may not always end up with, with me. And this is true for hips too, when it comes to periprosthetic fractures, right? So, right. you know, there's a bone must fix it kind of attitude happens and they end up in trauma clinic. So the incidence while this low might be even lower in an arthroplasty surgeon. On the flip side, if there's a joint in there and you're in an area that there's not a lot of traumatologists, it might show up to you because there is a joint and there's metal in another place. So they don't often come into my clinic. Um, I definitely have a few people who do exactly what you say. They fall, either go to the emergency room or they don't go to emergency room. They hobble around and show up at my office or show up at one of my colleagues' office being like, hey, I had a joint replacement done. There must be something wrong with the joint that the knee, go ahead and fix it. Right. So then I would a... Go ahead, yep. No, no, go, go, go ahead. My favorite one was a guy who was gambling it was three in the morning. He fell and tripped into the elevator. His wife got him into the hotel room and they showed up in my office. That was pretty fun. Oh, um, wow. Straight <laughs> from the hotel room to the office. Uh, they, they were able to get into an appointment or that day, actually, because we oh, have wow. a, a 24 hour turnaround. So they showed up and I go, what happened? He goes like, it was worth the gambling though. And I said, well, there you go. <laughs> it was worth it. There you go. Um, hey, okay. So, so say that, you know, this patient shows up and, and they have a, a patella, you know, this patient that just happened to have a patella fracture. Are there any, are there any things that, you know, would make a, a patient more at risk for having a, you know, a periprosthetic patella fracture? I know we just said that this happens uh, not too often or a rarer uh, injury, but what are some, 
like why would you know what are what are some things that we should just be on the lookout for and, and some risk factors for under for having this patella fracture one of the things that you have here is a question mark is one of those things that's becoming that's been probably more and more tested for you guys so back in the day i think everyone got their patellas resurfaced and you, as you probably can guess when you resurface the patella you're not supposed to make it too thin but sometimes we see those 10 11 12 millimeter um, patellas that are cut way too thin and they can actually i they can just fracture without much trauma in all honesty. So patella resurfacing, I think, is one of those areas that's becoming uh, more tested because less and less people are, are resurfacing the patella. Um, that really started over, I'd say, overseas in, the, in Europe and then kind of made its trend over here. And there's some centers that rarely resurface and there's some centers that only resurface. So the problem is that these patellas become thin is one, two, they can be devascularized from surgery itself. And one of the big areas too is one thing you highlight here is, is implant malrotation. So one of these things as a arthroplasty surgeon, we'd be careful about is yes, we got an x-ray we see here and it's very obvious there's a patella fracture. There's clearly a gap there. But more importantly is if you're gonna go into the joint, do you just acutely repair the patella or do you find out there's something else going on? Um, and that's when it comes to implant malrotation. And sometimes I will get a CT scan for patients. I really actually try to get old x-rays first. I go get old x-rays and I really wanna get a merchant view. I wanna see if that patella was tracking correctly in the first place. It may not have been. And if that's the case, I'm gonna go and revise. I wanna do everything simultaneously as opposed to taking the patient back two times to, to correct their, deformity or their problem. Are those the patients that that tell you, are, are things something that would kind of clue you in again in a CT scan is it, if they come in and say that they are having knee pain before that patellar fracture, would that be something that would clue you into towards malrotation or is this routine with every, with almost every, uh, you know, periprosthetic patellar fracture, you'll, you'll get a CT scan? It's a good question. Um, the nice thing about a CT scan is I can see what bone stock I have for the patella, right? So you guys think of when you're in trauma and a lot of times these people will get a CT scan because you wanna see what you're working with for fixation. I don't do that for every single person, I have to admit. Um, I'll ask patients, do you have a history of your kneecap moving to the side? Do you feel like when you're going up and down stairs, it feels like your kneecap is unstable? So normally there's something in their history that might clue me into getting that um, because I don't think the patella tracking may not be ideal. Okay. And is there any um, specific uh, width of the patel that you don't want it? So I know you mentioned 10, 11 millimeter cuts a little bit earlier. Is there any width that you don't want the patella to be smaller than that increases your chance for fracture? So that's the one I try to go for. I try not to go under 12 millimeters of thickness. So in the side view here is the best way to see the thickness. Um, they actually have done studies where our fingers are actually very good metrics. So we can use calipers that they offer. Um, each system is a different type of caliper and they all are not are great in all honesty. Um, but that said, you can use your fingers to feel the thickness there, measure it and go from there to try to get a flat surface. The hard part about looking at a lateral like this on an x-ray is that it's only 2D. Because of that, you can't tell if it was really thick in one part or appropriate in one part and too thin in another part. Um, so 12 is what I try not to go below. Normally what I do is I'll measure the patella and then ask what the thickness of, or know the thickness of the um, component that I'm going to place in there, either nine or 10 millimeters. Normally if for a really big one, it can be up to 11 millimeters and then resect that amount because you don't want to overstuff the patella either. Right. Yeah. Cause that could also lead to patella maltracking and, uh, and problems in the future. And so what are there, cause you know, when I was reading just preparing for this topic, there were um, things such as, well, 
let me backtrack. Anytime I've done the most total knees that I've done, I've seen on the patellar button, there are three pegs that normally fit into the patella. So, you know, you ream and make those three holes. Um, in reading, they were saying implant designs with a central peg uh, was one of the things that increases your risk for having a fracture. Are there any other, I guess, uh, implant uh, specific or, uh, or, you know, technique cement wise that will increase your chance for a patella fracture? You know, in these cases, when it comes to patella fracture, I think more what happens is that the patella button comes off. And then if the button comes off or doesn't have good fixation, then you don't have that same thickness that you would have that's reconstituted as a whole thing. So the central peg ones are older and luckily they learn from that and, and put three pegs into it. But if the fixation is not good, then it comes off and it's rubbing around in the joint and then it can actually cause you know trauma to the patella itself. Um, cementless, as you mentioned, there is a big one too, because it may not grow in. If it doesn't grow in, then it's also loose. For it comes to cementing techniques, and this is true throughout the knee as well, you don't want it too doughy, you don't want it too runny. And this is kind of like the Goldilocks of cement. So whatever I do is after mixing cement, I put it on the components first because it's in that phase. And then once it's the working phase, you want to put it on there. And, and a, two things that I say when it comes to cementing the patella first, you want to make sure that it's not too late. Right? So sometimes you get that cement psychosis where you're like, oh my gosh, I get the cement on. And by then you're really pushing it in and it's really hard to get the cement into the patella. At that point in time, it might be worthwhile just to open up a new pack of cement as painful as it is to cement yeah. the patella with a fresh pack. Um, and then two, on the flip side, you don't want to make it too runny because you want to have in interdigitation and push it in. And then and number three is once you put the patella clamp on, don't take it off till the cement is hard. As you know, orthopedic surgeons, we are not very patient. So the first thing we want to do <laughs> yes. is yank that thing off and start closing the wound, but you got to make right. sure it hardens. Yeah. And, and when these patients come into your, your clinic, is there anything that you particularly, you know, on the lookout for on a physical exam when you see them and you're examining these patients? I want to see if they can straight leg rise. Um, normally for these patients, what you can see is if um, they have this, let's say patella fracture and they've had this for years. I had a patient who walked in there, patella was, you know, a good six centimeters split down the middle apart from each other. And they could do a perfect straight leg rise with no extensor lag. That's pretty impressive. That also means there's a lot of fibrous scar tissue in between that did the trick. So yeah. it's one of those things where, you know, you want to check the patella components loose and if there's a lag, then there's something you want to repair more acutely than not. Right. And so I guess quick and dirty, how um, is there any, what are the, I guess, the surgical indications or, or patients that you would operate on that, that have these, um, that have these patella fractures around, you know, total joint uh, arthroplasty? They have a patella, I must fix it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the idea is exactly that you want to say they can't function, right? You can't walk right. around with a, with a continued lag and 20 degrees or more is really the metric that people use. So at those points in time, you know, and a patient can't live in an immobilizer. Now, if a patient's really sick, really old and taking them to the operating room is going to kill them essentially, then maybe it's not a good idea to do it. If they have like a 20 to get just 20 degree extensor lag only. But if they really can't straighten the leg, it, they, it, you know, they walk with the crazy thrust, it's not good for them um, long-term. So anytime there's a lag, I'll take them back. And if their component is loose, um, they can't live with that, their leg kind of, their knee kind of floating around. So that's another one too. All right. And then otherwise, besides, you know, just having a total, you know, an implant in there, is it just pretty much this AO basic principles you, you use can, you know, use 
can sell screw use screws or use tension band or is there anything in particular that you use for these so the hard part about putting screws in is normally that patella is pretty thin so if you put screws in, you're probably just going to put into a bag of mush or it's not going to really hold well. So without the patella component, either way, I'm a tension band person. That's just what I learned in residency and I feel more comfortable with it. So that's what I'm most likely to do. And it really can hold it together then. Um, so that's my go-to. Okay. Okay. That's pretty cool. Uh, anything else that you think, you know, we should know just about patella fractures, periprosthetic patella fractures? Yeah, the, the reason to get a CT scan, honestly, is to look at your bone stock to see what you can per get purchased into and bring it around. Sometimes people like to do the, you know, drill holes and the Houston suture passers and, you know, do all those sort of things to make sure you have enough of it. It's tough to say. Um, sometimes as arthroplasty surgeons, we don't like to admit we need help. So if you do need help, and this is true for residents as well, too, go ahead and call your trauma colleague who fixes a patella fracture every week and they can help you out. too. So it's okay to have help. Right. Yeah. It's okay to, you know, not be too prideful and uh, say you need help when you, I could, at the end of the day is for the patient. So you're trying to do what, what's best for the patient. If, and if the trauma person's coming, you know, helping out is best for the patient, then, you know, don't be, don't be too prideful to ask for a little bit of assistance. Now um, I say, you know, cause another, you know, when we're looking at our whole, you know, extensor mechanism, we have our quadriceps tendon, we have our patella and then our patella tendon. So you now we just talked about our, our, our uh, patella itself, but can you kind of touch base on, uh, you know, kind of quad tendon ruptures and, you know, how you evaluate these and, you know, if there are any risk factors or what you look for in these patients? So what the, it's always fun because I remember as a med student, they're like, what's this palpable defect? And you go feel it like, whoa, it really is a palpable defect. <laughs> you stick your fingers right <laughs> into it, is. right? <laughs> right above where the patella should be. And there's a big space, then they can't extend their leg. So that's pretty interesting to see. Um, this is more of a sports injury, all right? So this is one of those things where we saw probably more in sports or repaired more in sports. So use your crack out technique and, you know, kind of bring that all in together. Um, and, but, you know, it's, it's so key in these cases that you need to have, you know, a, a good extensor mechanism. And if your quad tendon is ruptured, you want to try to repair that acutely rather than waiting a long time with this. So, you know, things that you can do is you, know, you can get an MRI, you can get an ultrasound, but most of the times you can get it through an x-ray here. So you see patella baja. So whenever you see the kneecap going down, you know, we can use something called insulin savati ratio. You measure the length of the patella to the length of the patella tendon. And if it's, you know, less than what it, 0.8 then it's baja. And so in those cases, you want to make sure that you reconstruct that because if they have an extensor lag, same as get the patella fracture, you can't function with that. Yeah, I like it. We're getting getting a little sportsy here. Uh, I, I dig <laughs> it. <laughs> danger zone, and, danger zone. <laughs> and so what is your typical treatment for, you know, quad tendon ruptures? I know you mentioned a little bit earlier that we're looking at, you know, our extensor lag. We mentioned more than uh, 20 degrees being a surgical indication for when we talked about patella fractures, but what's your treatment algorithm for these patients that come in with a periprosthetic uh, quadriceps tendon rupture? It's really hard. So we talk about sports and those people normally have nice athletic legs or thinner legs and are able to, you know, put a good brace on it. The hard part about some of my patients who are older and may not be the most mobile is getting a brace on them can be really hard and compliance with the brace, locked in extension and ambulating can be difficult. Now they have no problem walking at the walker, they prefer to do that, but crutches, forget about it. So if it is less than 20 degrees, I agree that the idea is you can put them in a brace 
sometimes actually people do well with a cylinder cast as painful yeah. as it is it keeps them thing as long as you trust them to you know be good with their skin and you know take good hygiene and they're not you know five-year-olds in cast thankfully you can actually immobilize them for six weeks and then start moving it and then you know, take it off by valvid and you know things like that um so those are those are options that you can do for these patients but i have to tell you this group of patients they don't tolerate this well in all honesty um, their quad function is normally not that strong just to begin with so if you put them in this brace they don't do necessarily well so i have a lower threshold for repairing the quad tendon in these total knee patients than other patients i would say yeah and so do you have a preferred um repair technique so I hope to catch these early. A lot of these people do show up uh, in the Boston area. People are very acutely attuned to their health. So the second that they have a problem, they are in your office. So I like acute repairs. If you can do end-to-end -end repairs, that's the best way to go. Uh, I'm a crack house stitcher, you know, all the way up, all the way down, pull them through. And then uh, if you need to, you can drill through. I like that. I'm, I'm a, I like fixing and getting bone fixation as much as possible. So drill holes, I prefer to suture anchors personally. Um, I hope not to supplement. I don't like supplementation just because allografts don't aren't necessarily the best. But if you need to get scar, you need to get scar. So that can be useful. Yeah. And I know you just mentioned that, you know, in Boston, everybody, something's going on with the knee. They're, they're in to see the doc. But so say, for example, you have a, a patient uh, that that just moved to Boston who has had this chronic leg problem. Uh, and, and you go and you see them and, and you know, just like you said, um, you know, Patel, Baja, they say, hey, doc, you know, I can't really kick my foot all the way up. And you look at them and they have an extensor lag. Well, actually, let's take a quick step back. Some, sometimes we have medical students actually listen to this. Can you explain what an extensor lag is and what you would see on, on physical exam? I know this, to me it's, it's pretty clear, but then we may have some that may not exactly know what that is. No, that's a great point because it's something I didn't know well as a med student, in all honesty, because I thought anytime that the leg, if you try to extend the leg and you can't fully extend it, it had to be a flexion contracture. So there's two differences of a flexion contracture and extensor lag. So ideally a patient's able to fully extend their leg and if they can fully extend their leg, they have no contracture and they have no lag. What does that mean? If you have a patient who has a flexion contracture, they can't go past a certain point you with you holding it or them doing it either. So if you can imagine a straight leg being zero and it's bent just a little bit, let's say 10 degrees down from the straight across and down a little bit. If you're trying to push up against it and you're holding it and you're holding and trying to push down on it and you can't get the leg to straighten, the patient can't get the leg to straighten, that's a contracture. Versus a lag is if it's 10 degrees and it's bent down and the patient can't lift it up fully because they don't have the quadriceps tendon or the patella tendon or the um, patella itself, which makes up the extensor mechanism. If they don't have that ability, they can't lift it, but you can take the leg and straighten it out. So if you can straighten it out and correct it to zero degrees, then they have a lag because they have a lag of ability to pull it straight up on their own, but you can do it. So it's not a physical block. That was an excellent, uh, excellent uh, description of what an extensor lag is. So just like we just said, so say, for example, we have this person that just moved uh, into your office. They've had this chronic knee problem for over a year and a half now. Their knee has been bothering them. 
and they can't straighten their leg all the way, but you, you're able to passively get them to full extension, but when you let go, their leg drops to around 40 degrees and they can't hold it up. And you get an MRI, it's like we mentioned a little bit earlier, and you know that they just have this big defect where their quadriceps tendon should be. So they have this, these chronic ruptures. Uh, what is your treatment algorithm in that case? And, and, and again, this is a patient that has a, a total joint in there as well. That's interesting because something you'll notice in your own when you go into practice is your algorithm might change with time. Um, I have to admit, I was mostly an allograft reconstruction person first because that's what I had learned. Um, Mostly in the cases of a patient, let's say, really had no patella left. If they'd only have a patella, if you can get an allograft, you can put the bone in, trough it, and bring it up, and you can create a patella. Because the patella is a sesamoid bone, it does have give you some power um, through your extensor mechanism. That's why we don't do patellectomies anymore if we can help it. But most of the times, the patella is still there. And the patella is still there, I have to say, from a ease of use and a cost perspective, synthetic graft is actually easier to work with. So I'm a personal believer now in synthetic graft, especially over the context of a total knee, the hard part is to use synthetic graft if you have to make sure that that graft is not touching the surface of the implant in any way, shape, or form because it's pretty abrasive. So you have to make sure that there's some sort of soft tissue covering over it and then it can help scar the extensor mechanism down or the quad tendon down in this case, um, but you don't want it exposed. And so for your synthetic graft, this, you know, again, this is just a, a synthetic graft that is supposed to be a substitute for a natural quadriceps tendon, which is being chronically ruptured, maybe atrophied. And so you go and you attach it proximally to whatever end of a tendon that you can find. And distally, just like you said, you, I guess you probably attach it more anteriorly than, than posteriorly because you don't want it to touch the implant. Is there a specific a way that you um, tighten these? Do you have them in full extension when you when you, you know, do these synthetic grafts or do you tighten them in 30 degrees of flexion or I guess kind of what's your technique? So I like to fix distally first and then I call it water skiing. So to the med students on the podcast right now, you get to pull on the tendon as hard as you can with this, the graft. Or if you're the junior resident in the room, you get to pull as hard as you can and then everyone's so like crazy around it. So the idea is I do them in extension personally and put lots of tension on it because all these do is they basically scar down and they can only become lax over time. So the tightest you'll get it ideally is at the time of surgery. So I do an extension and yank on it, tight, suture it all down and leave them locked in extension for at least six weeks. Again, with the blood so knee brace, if they can tolerate it or a cast. Okay. And do you do, can you, I guess, can you explain what a quadriceps turndown is? I know I've, I've seen that as a possible uh, uh, choice or possible treatment choice for these these chronic, you know, quad tendon ruptures? Yeah, a quadriceps turndown. I personally never performed one of these myself, um, but okay. what you do is, is some of the quad tendon is, is always still there, right? There's something available in here. So because of that, you can actually cut part of the tendon and actually bring it down and have it create the other part of the tendon. So you use what's naturally there. The benefit, you know, as we know, if there's a joint in there, you have an increased risk of infection. So you stick something foreign like synthetic graft, or you even stick an allograft in there, you increase your risk of infection. For a quad den down, you're taking the patient's own quadriceps tendon and bringing it down and overlapping it and creating a quad tendon. It'll be thinner than their tendon, obviously, because you're taking some of their tissue, but it'll be their own natural tissue, which is nice. Okay, awesome, great. 
And so I think that was great for quad tendon rupture. And then last thing we, that we wanted to cover as far as the spectrum of our extensor mechanism is our, I guess our kind of patellar tendon ruptures, the, the dreaded thing that you do not want to have happen to you at all. You don't want to cut the patella tendon. This is what all of our, uh, our joint replacement uh, uh, docs say during total joint orthoplasty. So uh, say we have this unfortunate patient that has a, a total knee uh, patella tendon rupture. Well, actually, what are some what are some ways to prevent uh, number one a patellar tendon rupture or a laceration when you're you know when we're looking kind of through a total joint orthoplasty lens? So first is listen to the harassment of the attending. They're harassing you for a reason <laughs> because they know if the once the quad patellar tendon goes, you are in a lot of trouble. So the first thing is when you're doing dissections, um, you want to make sure that you know where the tubercle tibial tubercle is and go just medial to that if you're doing a medial parapatellar approach. So you don't wanna go into the quad tendon, sorry, the patella tendon in any way, shape or form is the first thing. Um, two, averting the patella, that's a whole question in and of itself. They show there's no difference with regards to avascular necrosis of the patella. Um, if you avert the patella, you probably put more tension on the patella tendon than if you don't. Um, one thing to watch out for is looking for scar tissue in that area. There's always a little bit of band of tissue right by the, um, tibial plateau headed up towards the um, patella, but it's not the tendon itself. You can release that with a knife, and I like to do it sharply dissection. And then when you do do the, you know, a removal of the fat pad, um, I don't like to skeletonize the fat pad. I like to leave some of the fat on there. Um, part of it's for vascularity and and neurovascular, uh, sorry, and and neuro, nerve structures being left behind. But it's also a good protection of the patella tendon. Like reminder, there's a patella tendon here. If you right. do see the patella tendon peeling up, I always say that total joints are team sports. So if you see something bad, speak up. If you do start stealing it, uh, seeing it peel up, take a pin and ideally a headed pin and stick it in there at an angle so you don't get into the way of the tibial keel to hold it down and keep it there until the end of the case and then you take it out. Right, okay. And are, are there any patients that you may encounter that you're like, mm, well, maybe, you know, if I'm doing this case, maybe I should, you know, be, be concerned that they, that they um, may be at a higher risk for having a patella tendon rupture or, or some stiffness or just something that may happen with the patella tendon. Like I should just be very careful. Obviously you should be very careful with every case, but are there any of those that you're like, I should pretty be, be very, very careful for about these patients. Right answer, always be careful with it, but anyone who has arthrofibrosis or stiffness, either it's because they've undergone multiple surgeries, because they're just stiff to begin with, um, it's a revision case um, or a primary case, doesn't make a difference. If they're stiff, there's a really good chance that you're gonna peel off the patella tendon when you're trying to flex up the knee, uh, let alone exposure to everything else, but anytime you're flexing it up there, be careful of that. So know in advance that in these type of patients, you might have to do just something different for exposure than your traditional medial parapatella approach. And, and what would some of those, and we don't have to go all the way into detail, but what would some of those things be just so people have a little, a little uh, a bit of ammo in their arsenal when they're maybe possibly getting pimped during their next total knee arthroplasty and they're having some difficulty everting the patella and don't want to lead to uh, any type of patella tendon rupture. It's a good pimp question, let me tell you. So um, <laughs> my go-to is a quad snip. So you go up and then you snip it at an, like about a 45 degree angle um, upwards through the quadriceps tendon, which you know scares all of us because we're trying to avoid the quadriceps tendon. 
But if you do that and you snip that and you close that at the end, most studies will show that you don't have to change rehabilitation. You don't need to change weight bearing status. You don't have to restrict range of motion because patients will restrict it themselves. So I, I have a low threshold in revision cases. I'm really struggling to just take the, the scissors or the, the, um, or the uh, scalpel and just do a quad snip. Um, you can do a quad turndown where you kind of go up and then you turn an angle and you bring the whole quad down where you can almost flip it downwards. I feel like it could devascularize the patella more. So I, I try to avoid that, but it does give you even more exposure. Um, I'm not a big fan of the tibial tubercle osteotomy because then you need the bone to heal around that. But that used to be the mainstay for a lot of people and still is for some people when they go down to the tibial tubercle. So instead of coming from the top and bringing it down from the quadriceps, they go from the bottom to the tibial tubercle, take a trough out of the tibia tubercle and actually lift the entire extensor mechanism, patella tendon, tibial tubercle, patella, and quadriceps all the way up in the air. So it's almost like a troke flip, we say. You just cut it open and then you expose the whole joint. I wonder if that would be a patient where who you may consider it in in patients that like before they had their knee arthroplasty uh, had um, had uh, patella maltracking uh, beforehand. Like, I, I just wonder if that'd be like, oh, well, maybe, you know, if we did it too, like did a did an osteotomy, we can medialize it a little bit because that'll help with our, you know, total joint tracking. And they, we know that they already had uh, pre-op, uh, you know, pre-op lateral knee instability and we're having trouble even in the patella. It's just a thought. I don't know. Said like a true sports surgeon. <laughs> nice little osteotomy while you're at it, which is a brilliant move. Um, to your point, that's actually a very good possibility. Some people have combined that together, you know, especially if they do have really bad patellofemoral disease. Um, it, it is a possibility. The hard part is then you're doing two things at once right. um, and may not heal either well. But I will say the one thing that does favor tibial tubercle osteotomies is that it's bone to bone healing, which we know is better than soft tissue to soft tissue healing. So there are times that it's warranted, I would say, but I don't personally love it. Okay. And, and what are some of the, uh, the ways that we can treat these patella tendon ruptures? So patella tendon ruptures are never fun things. It really depends on chronicity, I would say. So if it's acute, then you can actually try to, you know, tack it down with suture anchors um, and then, you know, take the same thing. I'm the Krakow stitch believer, maybe because Krakow did a bunch of joints, but, you know, bring it up the patella tendon, bring it down and then suture anchor it down. So that helps. Um, some people like drill holes and putting screws across it. Uh, it's more robust, but I don't necessarily know if that's going to actually make a huge difference. Suture anchors are really good nowadays. Now, if the patient has really bad bone, they're really osteoporotic, which can be the case in a lot of our um, patient population. Then if you put the screws, you can actually pull down the tendon and then wrap them around the screws and bring them down. So that seems to be helpful when it comes to uh, acute ones. Um, a lot of times, and one of the areas I would also say too, is that, you know, if it happens during surgery, right, you can tack it down. I've gotten, I've had them come up before during surgery, which is a never fun feeling, but then you ask them for whatever, you know, suture anchor that they have and they go, which one do you want? And they give you five different options and you go, I haven't done sports in so long that you just give me the one that works. And then, right. so I put it in, put it down there too. And that's for my acute ones, um, intraoperatively. Um, if it happens to rupture in the mid substance of it, that's not as common, I would say, um, but it can, it normally avulses, I would say. Um, you can just do end to end and, and suture it down that, that way too. The chronic ones are absolutely the hardest ones. Um, it, it really depends on how you wanna reconstruct it. One of my partners actually just um, did one yesterday where they actually uh, harvested the hamstring 
So think of an ACL harvest and then tunneled it from the pes upwards toward the patella tendon, wrapped it around the patella in two different directions and brought it back down and sutured it all down. Um, so that was, oh, a new wow. yeah, I've, yeah. I've never seen it before, never done it before, but he was describing it to me and I was like, that's pretty cool. Um, so you can do that. The more traditional ways are to use, um, allograft as opposed to autograft. And those allografts, um, can be like Achilles tendon. You can use that one. You can use patella tendon auto, uh, allograft that's harder to find. Um, but you can use that. You can use a, a bone block, um, in this case, and you can take the uh, Achilles tendon and the and the bone block from the calcaneus and trough it in there and then lay it over and make up for the patella tendon that way. Um, so you can, and you can do it with an, again, a complete extensor mechanism reconstruction with allograft. Um, harder to do though. Yeah. And since, you know, we were, we want to talk, spend some time on, um, you know, allograft or extensor reconstruction, what is this whole, what does this surgery consist of? I know we just said that that is one of our options for our patients that have these chronic, you know, patellar tendon uh, 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 ruptures where, you know, you get the x-ray and you see the patella is way up by the mid femur. It's pretty much not where it should be. It's, it's a lot higher than where it should. Um, and you're considering that. What is an allograft extensor reconstruction? Kind of what is some of the procedure? And then we, I know we have a couple um, uh, slides or some things that we, that we definitely want to touch base on here in a bit. So it really depends, I think, on whether or not you have to revise the components or not. So in the cases where you don't have to revise the components, say the rotation is good, they're all well fixed, there's no problems with it. What you can do is if you're doing an allograft is you can trough the bone in the tibia lay your allograft bone block in there, either with the you know, extensor allograft or with the um, Achilles tendon one. And then you wanna feed it up through what already exists there. So you know, in this case for it, what you wanna do is you wanna make sure that you over sew and you bring it over to existing soft tissue. Um, the mesh is something a little bit different when you have to do it is where you have to sandwich it so you protect it from the soft tissue. Um, that's a whole different area there, but the, for the allograft specifically, you want to make sure that you want to do enough host bone so you don't break a bone bridge. I always say 15 millimeters is good because you have that bone bridge, then you can actually bring your um, allograft over it and then sew it down to it. Um, some people like to put wires around the tibia when they're trying to fix down that bone block. That scares me a lot. I don't like putting things posteriorly in the tibia if I can help it. So I'm a bigger fan of taking screws and driving it through the bone block and then holding it trauma style. Okay. And so do you have any tips as far as noting um, whether or not your component is going to be, um, you know, stable or not preoperatively, just looking at the x-rays or anything that you look for, you're like, oh, I mean, that, that obviously is going to be loose, or I think that'll be loose. Like, what are some ways that, you know, looking through your eyes that you, you look and evaluate those x-rays? That's how when most of these patients are not coming in acutely, they're not coming to the emergency room, they're normally coming to your clinic. So because of that, you have a little more time to work things up. So in all these cases, I always work up an infection first. I get an ESR and CRP on patient. I aspirate them and see what it looks like. If I want to see what the soft tissue is like, which most of the times you don't have to do because you can see from the x-ray that you say the femur is flapping, uh, the patella is flapping in the breeze in the femur. Um, in those cases, you just need an x-ray. But this is where a bone scan can actually be helpful. Um, I wait to do a bone scan at least a year after surgery. And if the bone scan lights up, it can be inflammation or infection. Um, and it can be show loosening in these cases. And they're pretty sensitive. If it lights up, it's pretty sensitive. 
um, it is pretty it's sorry, it's pretty specific. It's just too sensitive and not as specific, right? So if it lights up, doesn't necessarily mean that it's loose. But if it doesn't light up, there's a really good chance that it's not loose. And I always check them interoperatively as well. But it's not loose, then you don't have to mess with it. Um, a lot of these times, though, I feel like patients are undergoing revision. Um, for example, for a patient who has a two-stage exchange, they've already gone the first stage of surgery, and for the second stage. Um, they need to get a reconstruction because their extensive mechanism out and you have to reimplant them. So you know you're going to have to put the implants in. And is the extensor reconstruction, is it just the blown block with, with, um, with some, you know, an, an allograft tendon with a, with a patella or with, a, with another piece of bone in the middle? You know, some place I've read that they actually, they remove the patella from the extensor expansion. I guess what all what are all they referring to when they talk about, you know, shelling the patel from the extensor expansion? So you get a lot of options. <laughs> the two options that mostly are used though are the uh, Achilles tendon allograft and the complete extensor mechanism allograft. And the complete extensor mechanism allograft has the tibial tubercle, the patella tendon, the patella, and the quad tendon. It's got the okay. whole nine yards and harvest. Right. So in those cases, like a patient who has either a patelectomy, which used to be the mainstay of treatment, you know, way back in the day. And I've seen a few patients come in my clinic with a all out patelectomy and lived with this for, you know, 30 years, which is impressive. Um, yeah. Those are cases you probably want to reconstruct because you can, you want the patella. And most of the times the patella is either still there. Um, and if it's, you know, really scant or had a previous fracture and it's, you know, completely kibble and bits, then a, a complete extensive mechanism reconstruction would be good in that case with, re with regards to an allograft of the whole thing. But most of the time, if the patella is there, you can get away with just an Achilles tendon allograft. Okay. So our, our indications to do a complete, uh, a complete, um, allograft extensive reconstruction would be, uh, would be one if, if there's just not really much, you know, not much, you know, patellar bone there. These are, they're chronic, uh, are chronic disruptions where, you know, the patella is really high and there's not much bone to really hold anything. Uh, that would be kind of one of our indications to undergo this. And then another would be if they had some prior patellectomy, you know, in the past and now they have this, you know, chronic patella tendon rupture, that is another uh, indication to proceed with uh, extensor reconstruction. Are there any are there any other indications to have a complete allograft extensor reconstruction? Mostly, if you need the patella, I would say. So those are my two go tos. Okay, and so when we're looking at extensor, you know, mechanism reconstruction, what are I know we have a couple principles for success, at least eight. This is a wild <laughs> guest, <laughs> but you what are, are so some? Good. <laughs> what of our what are some of our um, uh, you know, what are some of the things we need to be on the lookout for? What are how do we get set up for a successful mechanism uh, reconstruction? So number one is to not even do it. If you can help it, if the patient doesn't need it, then that's great because you can only probably, you won't make them worse if they already had the problem, but they never had an extensive problem in the first place. You can only make it worse. So avoid it if all possible. Um, you know, patients who have a high likelihood of extensive mechanism uh, problems. One, be careful when you're dissecting them, when you're performing the primary. Two, maybe consider early to mobilization, which is hard because you have to balance that with stiffness that happens in the post-operative period. And be really, really careful to not cause problems in these patients during surgery. That's what the ones we walked like a hawk. So if you can prevent it in the first place, that's number one. For the second one, you want to make sure that you have the allograft and you actually like it. So the idea is 
um, when you get the allograft itself, they normally don't just cut out the tibial bone block because they want you to be able to take it out. So make sure that you have enough bone in your bone block and enough tendon to sew into. Because if either of these are deficient, then you really want to make sure that you have a good one. And normally what I use as a rule of thumb is five centimeter for the tibia, five centimeters of quadricep tendon. It's interesting because you can order these in different ways. The, the, quad, the, the tibia is normally a standard one, but for the tendon, they sometimes say, do you want five? Do you want seven? Do you want nine or 11? And you know, we always think bigger is better in ortho, but it's not always the case. So you need at least five though for your tibia, for your quadriceps tendon. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just about to ask. But so it does this patient anatomy, does anything ever change the patient anatomy versus how much quadriceps tendon that you that you want? Like if this is a very, very, you know, super chronic, uh, you know, chronic uh, patient where the mechanism has been out and the patella is way retracted, are you considering, oh, well, maybe we need more or are you still, do you still stick with that five almost every time? Uh, five is minimum, I would say. I would try to go longer in all honesty because it's easier to cut down. Now the price does go up when you get longer and longer ones. Normally, if I another area I look at too is a patient's height. So if a patient's really tall, there's likely to need potentially more quadriceps tendon in that region. Um, so I don't want to make them Baja, right? So And I also want to make the patella right. tendon long enough too. So um, patient height will make me go for a longer one. Okay. And uh, right. what would be the third... Uh, key for success? So as an orthoplasty surgeon, I've got to look at the metal and the plastic. I got to make sure that they look right. Um, if they don't look right, then I will definitely want to advise them. You asked me earlier what I look at. Bone scan is one of them um, to see if an implant's loose, but it's not very good at you know making sure that it's not loose. So I still inspect during surgery itself. Um, two, if there's instability, if there's instability in the joint, so the patient needs to go to like a higher constraint implant, you know, they have a CR or even PS1, maybe they need a total stabilized one or a semi-constrained or even a hinge in some of these cases. And finally, if the components were actually put in incorrectly in the first place, you can get a CT scan um, and looking at the uh, axial views, you can actually follow the rotation through and see if it needs to be changed because if it's internally rotating, then we know the patella could be tracking incorrectly and that could lead to extensor mechanism problems. Right. And we mentioned a little bit earlier when you were talking about um, getting these bone scans, just, just really quickly to touch on that and kind of how it works, because I know we have residents that listen to this as well. And so maybe trying to learn, you know, future future joints um, uh, fellows in the making. Uh, but when we're looking at a bone scan, you know, the bone scan works because it is pretty much a scan that that shows you anywhere where there's increased uh, activity in, you know, the osteoblast or osteoclast. So if you're if you're concerned for an infection, you know, typically there's an uptake in that area because those bone cells are are more um, are more active than the other areas. But you know, if you have an, a fracture or anything going on, uh, if if you have a fracture and there's healing bone, you also have uptake in that area. Am I? Is that pretty much correct for the most part? It's a good way to put it. It's a good description. Okay, good. Perfect. Just for those that are listening, we hope you understand what a bone scan is and how it could kind of help when you're evaluating these total joints patients. Um, so continuing on, what are what are some of the other uh, things that we should be on the that we should know about when we're gonna go and do our, you know, our reconstructions? So Minimally invasive surgery is MIS, but MIS can also stand for maximally invasive surgery. That ah. is you. <laughs> you want to make sure you, 
plenty of room. Exactly. Well, sports, maybe not so much, but <laughs> rest <laughs> of it, maximum, maximum. So, you know, one of the things I like to do in all honesty is to um, prep out the entire leg and have a lot of space and then put on a tourniquet sterile if I need to. So that's one thing that I think is really helpful is make sure exposure is enough um, and make the incision as long as we need to follow the old incision. And I always tell a patient, I'm going to expose, I'm going to cut it above and below. So your incision will be even longer, even if it's a long incision to begin with and, and make sure that you expose everything so you can get through the scar tissue. It's kind of nice. If you're not keeping the patella, you can actually just peel straight down and cut it and open it up. Um, so that makes it a really nice exposure in all honesty, much easier than total knee. Right. Yeah. Okay. Much bigger. And, and for those that are watching um, on the YouTube channel, for those that are listening, we have a, a picture up here. Uh, but for those that are actually watching on the YouTube channel, can you kind of just describe what we're, what we're looking at here on this picture? Yeah, so we're looking at, so on the left side is proximal and the uh, right side is distal. And you can see the patella in the center there. And so what the idea is you can cut straight through the quadriceps tendon up above the patella actually skeletonize the patella ten, the patella itself and then cut down the patella tendon because we're gonna thread everything in here or remove it and reconstruct it. So you're gonna wanna thread it through. So you actually just skeletonize the patella as opposed to doing a medial parapatellar approach. Ah, okay, perfect, makes sense. And uh, this right here is, is just that patella being skeletonized. It's a right. fun feeling. Normally you wanna avoid that patella <laughs> like the plague and all of a sudden now you get to cut down straight into it. It's a great, Junior resident case, actually. Huh. I have never done one, uh, at least not yet. I will be on uh, joints again soon. So, well, you know, I hope I, I, I am not hoping that a patient has one of these. But <laughs> if this case comes, I would be more than happy to be in this case. <laughs> you are prepared. I like it. Exactly. Prepared. That is that's more kind of what we're, what we're going for. And these are kind of exposures. This is showing us our total joint. And what, what is this showing us here? Is this showing us that our that everything has been taken out? So um, two things. One is that there's flaps on the side, right? So you want to have these nice, thick, robust flaps because these are what you're going to sew down and recreate over it. Um, and then two, you can actually just see the implant itself and just make sure that it looks good. If you're not going to remove it, make sure you have enough tibia exposure. So you see, normally when we do our tibia exposure for a primary, we only go to the tibial tubercle. This is way past the tubercle, right? Um, one, because you want to preserve the extension mechanism normally. You want to have this distance because when you trough, again, you need to have a good, at least 15 millimeters or one and a half centimeters below the joint line to create a trough. And if you want a five centimeter trough, you need to be able to put that in. Awesome. Great. And four, uh, what, are, what is our next uh, key? So we want to make sure that the allograft is prepared correctly. Um, this is one of those things where you think of sports and preparing like an ACL graft, someone back table does it, or you know someone else does. This is something you want to be actively involved in if this is your case, because if you mess this up, these allografts aren't sitting around. You can't just go in the back and get another one of these, right? So treat this as you would an autograft. This is one of a kind. Make sure it's right, and you want to prepare it correctly. Okay. And when you say preparing, you just, like you said, making your cuts in the, in the tibia, making sure you have no bone stock and then, um, and then just, I guess just anything else that goes into preparing these. Yeah. So it depends on how you want to prepare it. So if you go distal here, some people just want to cut a rectangular wedge and wedge it into a rectangular shape. Some people say it's actually good to kind of bevel it. So if you bevel it at an angle, you kind of fit it and lock it in almost like a puzzle piece. 
Um, okay. It just gives a little bit more fixation to keep it from flipping upwards. It can still flip upwards and migrate upwards, even with fixation, but you want to make sure it's a thick enough block because if you make it too thin, the bone won't hold it. The screws won't hold through the bone or the wire won't hold through it if that's the case. Um, otherwise you can trough it around it. So this is the trough that you want to put in here. You can see the dimensions here of like, a distance from the joint line surface, the actual length of this. And this is a good size bone chunk. You know, we're talking six to eight centimeters. You said a minimum of five, but six to eight is ideal. And again, you want it to include the top of the patella, sorry, the top of the um, tibia where the um, top of the patella tendon is attached to bone and then enough distally to have fixation into. And so any, any tips with it, as far as preparing the host tibia, I know we just talked about, you know, um, you know, being having our distance from the plateau and going at the top of the tendon, but anything else as far as preparation with the tibia? Yeah, you want to make sure that it kind of fits like a glove. You want to make sure that what you trough and what you prepare in the tibia is similar to what you get in the host bone as well, too. Yep, and this is what we're doing here, we're kind of making our cut, getting our wedge out. And this is that rectangular shape that you were talking about in our tibia. And then, um, so what about our fixation of our, of our allograft and, you know, kind of that host junction? So that's a dealer's choice sort of thing. Some people prefer wire. Some people prefer screws. It depends on what you feel like. Um, again, the, the hard part about the, the screws is that you have to have a thick enough and robust enough bone to get it across and drive into it. The other thing you have to watch out to is for the keel. Or the, or the implant keel, if you drive screws across, so you almost have to drive it um, at 45 degree angles because you wanna make sure that you avoid that keel. So some people do prefer wires um, and they kind of put it around it and then turn it and fix it down. Um, but that's a dealer's choice. You can do either one as long as you have good fixation. And can you just briefly explain what the keel of an implant is for those yeah. that, are, that may not have done joints yet? Well, then you're missing out. So you have something <laughs> yes. fun to look forward to. <laughs> Very true. So in the ephemeral component, depending on what type of component it is, there's either two little pegs in it or a box holding it in. For the tibia though, it takes a lot of brunt of force as you can imagine. So if you just put a tibia and just cemented it on top, it could rotate and move. So what Correct. we do is we put something down inside the tibia that goes into the bone and it fix this, we call it the keel where it holds rotation so it doesn't move. Love it. Love it. All right. And this is kind of us, um, how, how you, how you get your fixation. And so what about your proximal fixation? What, I know we, we talked a little bit about it earlier when we were talking about our, um, our quadriceps tendon, um, uh, repair, but what about, um, what about for these reconstructions? What does that have to, what, what tips do you have as far as proximal fixation? I'm a big fan of pulling, pulling, pulling. So that whole water skiing move is real. You want to do it under tension, extension of the leg, and really, really pull hard on it. Um, crack all sutures are good because it interlocks and laces down and pulls down. And then put distal traction on the native quads. So you pull in opposite directions. You're pulling up proximally and you're pulling down distally. So when you have this creation, then you sew into it, then you get the maximum tension because again, this graft will only get loose over time. So this is the best it's going to be. So try to make it the best that you can. A lot of times people afterwards say, okay, here we go. I just did the repair. Let's flex up and see how it works. Don't test it. <laughs> Testing it only loosens it and only messes it up. You want it to turn to one big scar ball and then they can test it. And so what are our other two, um, our other two keys for success? So we, we went through about six of them right now. 
But do we have, what are our, our, our last two keys that we should know? So number one, no, so one of two, number seven, I guess, would be the key thing to be <laughs> cover the allograft with host tissue, right? Because again, you want it to scar down. Hosts, allograft is foreign tissue. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't scar down. There's no biologic tissue to it but it can scar to biologic tissue. So you want to make sure it's by, with the host tissue and make sure that you have a protocol. There are protocols that are available in papers. You know, I personally, I keep it for almost three months. I, I'd actually try to keep it for three months straight. Um, and, and the reason is because A, I don't trust my patients and B, this is their one shot. So make yeah. sure that the post-operative PT is correct, but people equate keeping their leg in extension with not exercising. And that's far from the truth because their quads will truly atrophy. So straight leg rises to their friends. They can walk with their legs in extension, all those things. So you want to make sure that physical therapy understands and that physical therapy isn't afraid that they had an extensive mechanism reconstruction and just avoid any sort of exercise. Okay. And, and the last thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up here in a, in a second is the use of mesh. Um, what, what are, I guess, what role does mesh play in you know in our allograft reconstructions and do you use mesh with every um with every reconstruction you use or what 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 is this, his role and, and why do you use or, or whatever thoughts or opinions you have on it so mesh is a game changer in my book the guys at mayo really made this a reality and arla hansen is really to be credited for this and it's awesome yeah one it's available because people in vascular use it all the time or in the general surgery world use it. So you don't have to get something special like an allograft. Um, two, again, it's just you're using stuff that's available. You suture it up and down. The key factor I would say with the mesh is that there's, they're bi-directional. If you pull it in one direction, it stretches more. If you pull in the other direction, it doesn't stretch as much. You want the side that doesn't stretch too much because you don't want your graft to stretch out. That's a problem. So what I do is almost all, actually all my cases now that I use extensor mechanisms for are with mesh. And the reason it's really good, I think, is because you can use it in two ways. You can use it with existing implants. And what you do is you create a trough with the burr and you feed it into it with cement and then suture it over. Or when I'm redoing a reconstruction, I can tuck it under an implant and then use that cement as my fixation, do the implant on top of it, bring it over and then suture it around. So it creates a nice scar ball. Uh, I feel like the extent, I, the ones that I've done have had no extensor lag, which has been awesome. Um, the reflection right. goes to about 90, which is, you know, not ideal, but not terrible. You know, it's better than nothing. So I will take it and run with it. That's awesome. Well, well Dr. Chan, I think, I, I think this has been a, um, a great talk on number one, going over, you know, kind of the different ways the different parts for the extensor mechanism and and kind of the risk factors for total joints we talked about the patella tendon um, we talked about the patella tendon ruptures and ways to avoid that especially number one with our exposures um, we talk about the the vy uh, no not the vy the quadriceps snip uh, we mentioned the turn down we mentioned making sure that you are uh, medial to your tibial tubercle uh, we talked about the uh, the patella fractures and how we, you know, definitely don't want to make sure that our cuts are not too thin. I think we mentioned 12 millimeters, uh, at least 12 millimeters that we wanted for our our patella uh, bone stock to be in place. And we talked about, you know, kind of the quadriceps things that you'd be on the lookout for on the x-rays. And I overall enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Dr. Chen, is there anything else that you uh, would want people to know about, you know, this extensor mechanism reconstructions before we wrap up here? 
You nailed it. It was all really good. It's a good uh, <laughs> recap there. And it's useful in trauma and in joints as well, too. So it's, it's good all around knowledge to have. So hopefully you don't have to encounter too many of them. But when you do, you feel ready. Right. And, and Dr. Chen, we always, you know, give our guests or our speakers at the end of our episode any way for our guests to reach you or build your, your brand if you have social media that you would like people to follow you on or, or somewhere if you want people to email you or anything if you have anything that you would like to share with the people go for it if not that is completely fine totally up to you two ways um, one is something called twitter which i didn't know well before you guys know it well all too well um, at Dr. Antonia Chen or, or by email um, my email is afchen at bwh.harvard.edu so anyway you want to reach out to me please feel free well again dr chen this has been an excellent episode i uh, really appreciate you for taking the time out and coming on the podcast for the listeners thank you all for listening to yet another episode with nail it ortho podcast please and go and leave us a review in itunes and let us know how much you liked this episode and how much you learned and again hit that subscribe button and we will see you all next week